Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. This week, we spend the hour speaking with award-winning filmmaker Gianfranco Rossi about his new documentary film, Nutorno. Shot over a three-year period along the borders between Syria, Iraq, Kurdistan, and Lebanon, Nutorno gives voice to a human drama that transcends geographical divisions and time, illuminating with encounters and images the daily life that lies behind the continuous tragedy of war, brutal dictatorships, foreign invasions, and interference, and finally, the murderous apocalypse of ISIS. In Nutorno, war does not appear directly. We hear it in the mournful dirges of mothers, in the stammering of permanently wounded children, and in a play about the history of the Middle East performed by patients in a psychiatric hospital in Baghdad. Gianfranco Rossi's 2016 film, Fire at Sea, won the Golden Bear at the Berlin Film Festival. Nutorno has been selected as Italy's entry to this year's Oscars in the Best International Feature category. I spoke with Gianfranco about the idea behind the film and the people he met on his journey throughout the war-torn region on the borders between Iraq, Kurdistan, Syria, and Lebanon. Welcome back, Gianfranco. What a pleasure to speak with you again. The last time we met and spoke was when you screened your award-winning film, The Fire at Sea, during the San Francisco International Film Festival. That documentary chronicles the harrowing journey of refugees who landed on the shores of uh, Lampedusa. And in that documentary, we see how on that tiny island, there are two realities which exist side by side. One about the mundane life of the people on the island and the other, the refugees who risk their life to get to Europe. Can you talk about the connections between that documentary and Nutorno. And it's so beautiful to meet you because I remember exactly when we met. There was a screening of, uh, of my film in uh, San Rafael. And now, three years later, I'm here talking about another work that I did, which is so much connected, as you say, to that little island in Lampedusa. You know, Lampedusa at the time was uh, at the beginning of this wave of people living conflict and living violence and living fear and just maybe wanted to create a better life for themselves you know and lampedusa was an invisible border at the time you know lampedusa was out of the map in italy nobody knew lampedusa and then lampedusa became you know this year the gate of europe it's the first European place, the first stand of European embracing people arriving. And after being there for three years, filming this film, which, you know, the dramaticity that I went through, mm. I was able only to film the island, you know, and the people were passing by there. They were just passing by and disappearing because they were staying there only one day, two days, maybe three days, and then they were like dislocated, and I use this horrible word, dislocated all over Europe or in Italy. At that time, there was a Europe that was a building hypothetical 
borders, you know, so the thing became more and more and more complex. The more this border was becoming closer to Africa, the more people they were rescued from the, that time there was still the Italian army being there in a very effective way. And I encountered all these people near to death, but I was not able, except one episode in my film when there is this rap song, which I think you remember, where they say crossing the sea mm -hmm. is like crossing the sea, but we rather die on the sea and not dying here in the prison of Libya, where they forced us to drink pee. And, and these are the people that are coming from, from Middle East, you know, from the place that uh, somehow is a huge, huge uh, mystery. Still for me, it's a mystery what's happening there. And for me, it was like a very obvious step to go and cross the sea and go to face, you know, these borders, these uh, borders which at the time ISIS was like collapsing. And ISIS, uh, after years, years, years of uh, threatening, of creating disaster there, was collapsing. So I decided to go through these borders of the old uh, Islamic state of ISIS and uh, following these borders, which went from Lebanon to Syria, to Kurdistan, and to Iraq, back to the south of Iraq with uh, Iran, where somehow all the jihad was starting, all these people that were recruiting there. You went to Basra. Yeah, Basra, Basra. Yeah. Because on Basra, you know, I had to create absolutes. Unfortunately, I cannot show you my map, which I always show. When I start talking, I have to show my map. Because for Lampedusa, a little island of 5,000 people, I haven't confronted myself with the millions, millions, millions of population, mm. stratification of culture, and understanding somehow that the border is a stratification of memory. And every of that place is an example of uh, a cancel identity, is an example of devastation, physical and psychological. Yeah. That's why in my film there is also a psychiatric hospital. And when I started this film, I started this film with other camera, walking, walking around with my assistant that I had in every single place that I went. I was a one-man crew, but in every place I had an incredible production, an incredible people. They were all very young filmmakers. They wanted to be there and sharing this uh, idea of filming. And my first idea was that I have in this film to completely eliminate the idea of border. As I said before, Lampedusa was a, an invisible limit you know, of the border. And then I say there's a human dimension there on this border. There is a stratification on this border. There is a margin of stories and history on this border. And the border is a, is a place that divides, separates, and somehow unites things. And for me, this was an occasion for encounter. And I just let myself transported from one place to another place where at the end to cancel this division about the territory and created like a mental space, you know, a psychogeography. And I just let the film belong to the people I met in these mm. three years of journey there. The mm. film is about encounter. For me, the pain I made uh, in places of war where the echo of war was always present it's exactly the same pain in Kurdistan, in Libya, and things. It's exactly the same pain. And that's what I wanted the film to be. You know, the, the devastation, that wave that this 
were created and somehow touched people miles, miles, miles away from where the world was ha happening in that moment. And this for me was very important. This is the people I want to tell the story about. This is the people that are able to survive in such a struggle. And I choose as stories, very simple as story, but those stories has an incredible belonging to something that is universal, you know, it's a pain that is universal. It's a stratification of memory that is uh, archetypical. And that's what I want the film to be. And with this, I close my introduction. And I think this film is uh, the only film that is happening between the devastation of ISIS and the devastation of, of this pandemic and the devastation of the political lack of awareness of what's happening in these places. And these people that are living something which is profoundly painful for me, which is the tragedy of the destiny, which is the betrayal of the history. And that's what I think the film has to capture, you know, mm -hmm. in a very subtle way, in a way that is more close to, not to a, a reportage, but to a, a language of cinema where you have the time and the space to interpret it and to absorb what every single encounter means in a universal way again, in something that is so close to archetypical. And that's for me what was important. This is the challenge of this film. It's interesting what you said about Lampedusa. In Lampedusa, it's just one tiny island. And as you say, there are no borders, but there are invisible borders because there are two types of life existing side by side. When you go to these border areas in Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, Kurdistan, in the film, for people who are not familiar with the region, these borders become invisible. And it's really hard to know where you are filming. And you provide very little information except a couple of captions in the beginning of the film as how these people got to where they are. My film is political in a very broadly way, mm -hmm. very open way is political, my film. I wanted to have my film be subtraction, subtraction, subtraction of information. And I wanted the film to be carried by the single people I met. There were only eight people I met in these three years. And that's what I think that the power of the film can have this strength of giving that sense of what was lost and what is our responsibility in the West. Mm. My film is the only film that was shot in between uh, the ISIS crisis, the ISIS terrific things that happened there, and this, this moment of the pandemic, because we're gonna meet a world that nobody, nobody, nobody talks about. And I'm very glad to be in this uh, talk with you about Middle East. And very few people talk about that. Yeah. My film is about the people that have uh, this universal language, it's about people like Ali, and meeting Ali, you can, you, you say, why this kid that is only 14 or 13, yeah. when I met him, he has to do that. Why in this room, there are all these Yazidi kids with no parents, with nothing, they left everything, that instead of drawing flowers or soccer playing or things, they're drawing in this therapy, they're drawing a head chopped off, you know, by ISIS. 
why there is a guy that is lost completely in this land, why there is this psychiatric hospital where they try to to rebuild the history of Middle East in this uh, little stage inside a psychiatric hospital because they want the truth. And that's where I find the truth in this film, this psychiatric hospital, this fantastic doctor that I met, that he was trying to say, okay, this is what happened from 1916 to yesterday, to ISIS coming here, and we're being betrayed. And this is the sense that I have caused of being betrayed and being abandoned. And this is the betrayed of history, what Pasolini used to say, the betrayed of history. Hmm. I wanted to ask you about how you pick the characters. In the beginning, you spent six months in those regions without a camera. What was your cinematic journey like? Because you don't speak the language, and I assume you're not very familiar with the culture. No, and, uh, and they want to get any information. They want to mm, study. Exactly. Because I wanted my film to be part of encounter, mm. like I always did it from both Bambilosilevo things. It was all about encounter, my making a film, and I have to give my I don't want to call it vision, but interaction with the people I meet. I want to give them the world, and I want to be always. Uh, very aware that making cinema is about missing things. Making cinema is uh, what is left out. How do you feel silence? How do you feel uh, the mood something? And how cinema can become a metaphor, which include what is left out. For me, this has always been a, a big challenge. But yet, using the language of cinema with awareness of what I have in front of me is totally real. It's something that's happening in front of my camera and this is real, that nobody can write or can interpret it as an actor what I'm filming in that moment. And this is the beauty of documentary for me. And this is why I keep doing documentary, documentary, because, you know, people say, ah, why don't you write a film? Because the moment I write something, I would be extremely bored to put it in place. You know, I have to make a cast, I have to have a producer, things. I have a fantastic producer, many producers. But I don't like the idea of recreating something. Uh, I love the idea that when you put the camera, there's something so strong and so powerful that becomes uh, something that you never expected. And there is in front of your camera. And at that point, you have to know that you shot 90 hours and your film is going to be only two hours. Yeah. So your film is about taking out, taking out, subtraction, subtraction, like information. I cannot give all this information. About ISIS, I have three shots. About the pain of the mother, I have one shot. About So for me, making film is about taking off, taking off, taking off, and taking out. And somehow by taking out is a fight, it's a challenge between how the audience they're going to watch this movie and I don't give them any reference at any level, they can accept that. And this is my fight constantly. And uh, I believe the, through the language of cinema, we can arrive to do that. You know, when you have one frame from the beginning of the film and that frame becomes a point of view and you're thinking there's many, many people watching this film and that point of view has to be the point of view of the audience and if the audience has the patient throughout this first station that they don't know anything there's no information there's no voiceover you don't know where you are but if you're able to embrace the people i met in these three 
years, at the end of this journey, you're going to have many, many answers that I believe no essay or no journalist, I think, can bring it to you. And maybe just give you a thought about, uh, a thought that somehow can break the stereotypes of the world that has been so much uh, misleading in all this year. And I would like just to embrace the people that are part of this film. Mm. And uh, I'm sure at the end of the film, you have the energy to go to these two hours. You have an answer there. You have an answer when you look at Ali's face. Ali is uh, one of the protagonists of the film. Yes. He doesn't say a single word. He doesn't say anything. It's the first time I feel with a close-up lens, you know, with an 85 millimeter lens, because in he's not talking, he says so much with his body language, with his uh, effort that every day he's uh, forced to go through life. And there, I think uh, you get all the answer you want if you're not judging, if you let yourself go without judgment. Let's start talking about some of the characters. Your film is stunning visually. The landscape, the close-ups, you really capture the essence of the landscape and people who are traumatized by decades of war, conquest, invasion. I love, I love in the film when the, the people in the hospital say, is this an invasion or is it is a liberation? <laughs> it's like the big dilemma. Yeah, but at the end, they do curse America for invading the country. And it's one of the men. On, the script, on, yes. their own, uh, on their own performance, they say, no America, no Iran. No Iran, exactly. So let's talk about Ali, one of the main protagonists of your film. In an interview, you said you followed Ali for four days, and then there is a moment that's right. You never know when that moment is going to come, but you know that you have to follow constantly. You say, for me, it's important to capture the reality, but also to transform it. Otherwise, it becomes just observational. Tell us about... Did I say this? Yes, you did. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Which is very profound, by the way. Can you give us the backstory of Ali? How did you find him? Well, Ali, on my first, first journey, I was trying to create some absolutes of places. I shot Ali in Arida. Arida is the poorest village in Middle East. And this place is exactly the border with Syria. And this place, during the ISIS uh, conflict, was there, you know, ISIS was trying to arrive there. Syria was coming because Lebanon is ours, not Lebanon is Syria, blah, blah, blah. So this conflict. So when I did my journey, I created some absolute, okay, this is a place where I have to be. Tripoli is a place I have to be. Baghdad is a place I have to be. Rojava is a place I have to be. Sinjar is a place I have to be in Kojo. There have been like 3,000 women taken out. So I created this absolute in this map. And then when I went to the Arida, this poor, 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 poor village of fishermen, I encountered this family. And this family, you know, they invited us to eat there, to have fish, to stay in their home, and they were extremely curious. And this is very important for me to be there without a camera, without filming, just like looking around, looking around, looking around. And then in that moment, I met a kid, when I was there, he came to me and he was doing the morning prayer. He was a 15, 16 year old kid. And I completely fell in love with him. It was fantastic. And I thought he was going to be my protagonist there, this kid. When I went back after a year, 
to film with the camera, I was looking for him. And he changed completely, this kid. You know, he became something else. So I said, oh, this is not anymore the kid I met two years ago. <laughs> because, you know, I had like three years ago in all these places. So sometimes past one year, two years, you know, I went back to the place and said, okay, where I want to be. And then I was there with my producer, with uh, my Lebanese producer. And there is, you know, here, there's a hunting season right now here. And you have to watch this because kids, they take out uh, time from the school they, because they're hunter coming for two, three months here and they're hunting. And the kids, they just go there and pick up the birds and they're like dogs, basically. Yeah. Retrieve dogs, you know. I said, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. And then I went there during the season of the hunting. And uh, in the morning, I was uh, I rented this uh, place there where we sleep for months. <laughs> Basically, we're in this like house in the middle of like hunter, another war. And then I meet again this family. There were like eight kids there, and they're all doing this. And I was not able to say I don't believe they're doing this. I don't believe they're doing. And then after following this every one day, two days, three days, four days. I start watching the face of these kids. And suddenly I met Ali when he was waiting there for the car to pick him up for three dollars. And day. I really he never talked to me, these kids. You know, sometimes I was filming him and I didn't know that was him. I thought it was one of the brothers. And then slowly, slowly, slowly I start being because he never talked to me. He was so shy. And then slowly I say, no, but this is incredible. This kid is like, yes, such an incredible. And then I say, what do you do after that? I go to the boat and do fishing. And then I do this and then I do that. And I go hunting on my own to bring the... And I start following his life. And by following his life, I first had to look what he does every day, every day, every day. And then somehow I was able to anticipate or just work with him in the moment. He say, which one is your tree where you go? He say, I have to look for a tree always. And this is my favorite yeah. tree where I go hunting. And then this tree became like my journey every day with him. Till one day under this tree, there's a huge store, huge. You remember this? this yes. Scene? And this he sits thing. there patiently. Yes. And I was there filming and I was there with him. And that became like somehow a narrative for me, you know? I said, look at these kids, he's here. But of course, the camera changes things. But mm -hmm. then the camera made also miracles of narration. People ask me, oh, this is all scripted. It's not scripted. It's about being able to spend days, 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 days there and following a daily life of someone. And then that moment becomes so incredible that no, again, filmmaking and no writing can do. And for me, the beginning of working with him was this tempest that came when he was hunting. <clears throat> the sky go crazy, right? And this wind, my camera fly away. I was able to film that moment he's under the tree and I was able to move the camera. He's really there under the tree. I start filming him. And that's, he became a protagonist. I said, mm -hmm. but this is incredible. The nature, the things that... They start following his life every day, waking up in the morning. The mother, he opened us the, the room and said, what time he, he wakes up? He said, when the hunter comes. Said, what time the hunter comes? At three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. And I wake him up. So I spent the whole night there waking, 
the mother waking him up and filming that moment when it's like going outside and this is the end of the film. And then being there, I don't want to use this world, but you know, in Pasolini film, there is this element of, uh, of prostitution of kids are there. And that's what I felt that he was doing there, you know, like being himself on this road, waiting for the hunter to come and pick him up to get three euro, four euro for the whole day. And uh, I tried to talk to him, he never talks, he's extremely shy. And then he became this uh, silent character in the film, mm. you know, this voice of silence, which for me is part of the movie, is the silence in between notes, you know? Because to film silence is the most difficult thing. To film silence with no words, where people don't talk, is the most challenging thing for a filmmaker, to film the silence in between notes, to film the space of silence, you know? And this is what this film is about, the silence, the weight, the suspension, the future that doesn't come, the future that is so uncertain. Ali, in many ways, represents tens of millions of children in the world, uh, especially those in the war zone who have been forgotten and marginalized. And Yeah, but also like the mother, they represent millions, millions, millions of exactly. mothers that cry for their exactly. own body. It's at the beginning of the film. That's why that scene is at the beginning mm. of the film, because for me it's so important to see that uh, this is a universal pain. And this was the scene where I wanted to break the whole border, this invisible limit that was imposed. I wanted to break it up completely mm. in this movie. And this was my yeah. idea of breaking that, which I risk a lot, you know, because people are fighting for borders constantly. There's and the question becomes, what is the future holds for someone like Ali? Because he was the sole breadwinner of this household, and the father was nowhere to be found. The father is a fisherman. He went on a journey. The father, he came and started working with him. He came back, but then, you know, I decided for me the protagonist was him alone, and mm. the, most of the footage that I shot when he was alone there. And the father, he was arrested in Syria because he was a fisherman. And he went out of the border of the sea and he was arrested and spent time in Rio. So the whole family was on him, basically. And that's what I wanted. But that's what he does still now. You brought up Farsi. We had a foundation that incredible, generous people gave a lot of money to this foundation. And we were able to do a lot with the foundation of Farsi. Now we don't have any money anymore. But with the last money we had, we were able to buy a boat to Ali. Huh. And now he has his own boat, and the boat is called Captain Ali. <laughs> and he's able to go fish, and, uh, and he doesn't have to work for hunters or for things anymore. And he has his own boat, and he's able to bring home food hmm. every day. Is he going to school? No. He was very bright. I spoke to the teacher. There is a sister there that she's fantastic. She's the best in the school there, but I didn't have the time. You know, every episode in my feet could be like a three-hour, four-hour yeah. movies. And, but I have to create always a synthesis of subtraction yeah. in every story and to be able to find just one little, little story that was able to go somewhere else, somewhere else, somewhere else. And Ali was the one that I wanted to, to tell the story about, mm. it. the story of silence, the story of... Uh, you don't have to talk about things. Mm. Sometimes you just have to sort of give the sense of silence, which is the important space between notes, again, as I said to you before. Yeah. 
And the close-up shots of Ali also tells a different story about him. And the only time in my life as a filmmaker, I use the 85 lens. I realize that because you usually do a lens. I use the 18 and the 25. And for the first time in this film, I shot close-up of Ali because this um, this close-up they were like interviews for me. Mm. And every time he was at home alone, I was there with my camera. He didn't care anymore. I was there in this room. And I, I had to be close to him. I had to put this lens, which is a far lens, you know, it's an 85. And because I knew that his face was telling more than any conversation, mm-hmm. that any, any answer, any question I could ask him. And that's why I decided to film, to close the film with this um, close-up, you know, and this game close-up. And that's why the name of the, the title of the film is not Turno, because, I mean, this night has to end, you know, <laughs> sort of later, this darkness. Yeah. There is, after night, after nightmare, it has to be some shine, some sun that's coming out. Which is also the title of your film, Neturno. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like yeah. uh, that's why I have to give this title to the film Nocturna because after this night, I hope that it's like a sunset, a sunrise, uh, and then yes, there is a sunset. But how long is the sunset to, until the sunrise comes? Mm. You know, that takes me to other characters in the film talking about close up and how these faces tell their own stories. We watch a rehearsal of a play about the history of the whole Middle East at a Baghdad psychiatric hospital. You devote multiple lengthy scenes to the play. The Baghdad psychiatric hospital, it's a place that seen Saddam Hussein. It was a refugee for people there. People that they lost everything in that time. And everything, sometimes people they just prefer to live in that place and be outside when they lost everything. Uh, Sometimes people really were extremely damaged psychologically and arrived in this place. So this place for me, the Baghdad uh, Socratic Hospital, was uh, an absolute, another absolute to be filled. And I spent three years to fill that. Again, this thing cannot be done with the people I have, you know, like local producer and local assistant uh, protecting me and uh, trusting me. And, and say, yes, we can do that, we can do that, we cannot do that. We, yes, you can do that, Gianfranco, but you, no, let's, this is very dangerous. And this place uh, was so hard to get a permit to film. But from the beginning of my journey, that was one of my plays. You know, I wanted to film, I wanted to film there. And I went one, two, three, four, five, six times, ten times there. And without having permit to film. But still, I said, this narration has to be part of the film because this is like a, a metaphor of what's going on there. And I never knew how to film that. And I never had a permit to do that. And the last journey I did after all, the film was half edited. The first edit was there and everybody said, okay, this is perfect. The film is perfect. You don't have to go back. And then I went back again there for five months because I knew there were so many missing things, like the telephone call is another missing part, you know, which started at the beginning and only after three years I was able to find them, we can talk about that. But the Baghdad Psychiatric Hospital was something I really wanted to have in my film. 
And I couldn't, I couldn't go back, I go back, I go back, I go back. No permit, no permit, no permit, no permit. Finally, they gave me permit to shoot. I go there and, and then they say, okay, but the condition is that you cannot shoot here the faces of the people. You cannot shoot the patient. And then I said, well, <laughs> what am I going to shoot? Well, yes, the BBC was here and they were very happy to have this permit. So after so many years, we decided to give you this permit. I said, hey, but with this permit, I cannot do anything. In the meantime, I, I created a very strong interaction with the head of the hospital and with this doctor that is doing so many things there. And that day, I asked my sister, please, let's go back there. I have to find a way to film this. And it was already January, February. I finished the film in end of February. And I was in the hospital, I entered this room, and I see the patient sitting there in this room watching a video. And they were laughing, and this video had archival footage. And I said, this is an incredible world. What's going on here? And I went out, I spoke to the daughter, said, oh, this is something we do with uh, every few months with patients. It's a theater therapy. Yeah. We do therapy for that. That's so part of their rehab, is, yeah. And the play is about the Middle East. And then with my sister, I went through this huge, like, was 50 pages play. And I was so fascinated. I said, this is the history of Middle East. Mm. And I said, are you starting a new group? Yes, next week. And then I asked a new permit. They gave me the permit to film only the people doing the play. And I said, but, you know, I have also to shoot them when they do the memorization when they're in the room. And then they allowed me to do it. I said, but unless you don't show their faces. And then I spent there another month filming this rehearsal and discovering that this rehearsal was really the history of Middle East. So this is, was another incredible encounter that I had. But still, every encounter is a matter of saying, I want to go there, I want to go in this story, I want to go in this story and get to the essence of the truth of what this story is telling us. This was very important for me, every yeah. single story. And there are only eight stories in this film. Yeah. In order to complete this eight story, it took me three years. And in order to put this in the screen, I had to take off all the borders because this was the only way to create this universal story about a place that's being destructed and somehow victimized by the West. I should also add that you don't interview anyone. Much of the film is silent. But what I appreciated was the fact that you allowed these people who have been traumatized physically and emotionally to be able to tell their own story. I'm speaking with award-winning documentary filmmaker Gianfranco Rossi about his latest documentary film, Noterno, which captures life in the war-scarred border areas of Iraq, Kurdistan, Syria, and Lebanon. We'll talk more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan.
For those of you joining us now, I am Malihe Razuzan and you are listening to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa on Pacifica Radio. I'm speaking with award-winning documentary filmmaker Gianfranco Rossi about his new film, Notorno, shot over a three-year period along the borders between Syria, Iraq, Kurdistan, and Lebanon. Notorno has been selected as Italy's entry to this year's Oscars in the Best International Feature category. One of the long scenes in the film is about kids, Yazidi kids, telling a psychologist about the horrors of being captives of ISIS, witnessing torture and murders of prisoners. And the trauma these children carry was so vivid also in the drawing that they posted on the wall. I want to spend some time with you on these kids. How did you find them? And I read somewhere that when you were filming the classroom scene, you did not want any of the conversation to be translated. You just sat down and watched and filmed. That was always the case on any, any scene. Mm. The mother with every moment, I didn't understand anything. But I knew that moment was so precious and so fundamental to be filmed. You're talking the mother who went to to a cell in the the abandoned prison. Tell me about how you found these kids and um, tell us about their stories. How did they end up in this orphanage? Well, this is a very painful moment for me. As a human being, as a father, I have a daughter. And this was an absolute. I went... uh, in Sinjar, in Kojo. Kojo is a place that's been destroyed by ISIS, completely destroyed by ISIS. That's where also the phone call is there. And that's another incredible story. Yes. The phone call with the mother, the daughter. Who was captured and yeah. imprisoned by ISIS. Yeah. Yeah. And then I filmed her in Germany. And this orphanage, these kids, completely dismissed from their life, completely erupted from their life, completely destroyed from their life. And I spent again days, weeks, months there to say, how am I going to tell this story? One day I was there and I met this woman, this incredible teacher. She said, I'm a teacher from this NGO from Germany and I tried to give a break to these kids to somehow put his kids in, in the order that are still living, although they went through the worst things. And I said, how do you do that? I do this therapy. And again, this is like the therapy in Baghdad of theater. I do this therapy with drawing, drawing therapy. And then I start filming these kids every day, every day, every day, drawing, 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 drawing. And I was there filming them and try to understand the pain of these kids. I have another three hours documentary that could be there. And then in this room, I realized that this room became like Norimberga. And this is the only moment of truth. When kids, this part of history was never filmed, photographed, analyzed by nobody. And these kids drawing something that 13, 9, 12, you shouldn't do that. 
And for me to be there and witnessing every drawing, everything, to be able to cut this down in a moment in the field that comes only this room, I have to think that this is the room where time and history encounter and where there's some witness, there's a judge, there's a thing, so that, mm. and this is the only moment of truth I can give in the film. But then this uh, scene was a completely cacophony with all my rest of the film because my film was somehow going in a very lyrical way. And this lyricism, lyricism, I couldn't capture in that moment, in that room. And then I forced myself to say, okay, no, I have to be here. I have to be here and feel this moment of truth. And after spending months there and be able to go in this room and film in this witness that these kids are, again, this is a history. And this is a passage that is so painful in history. And this is the only witness through the eyes of kids of what they went through. Those drawings are, are horrific. No, the drawings, they become, again, it's like, because they're filming and say, no, these kids should draw balloons, should draw yeah. happy things. And these kids, they were drawing chopping heads. They were drawing chopping hands. They were drawing burning houses. And they were drawing something that I think humanity didn't face. In the Western world, we are not able to understand that. And this is a very, very small part of the film. And it's, again, a part of taking off information. But I hope that in that room where we arrived there, there's an incredible division between true and false. And what is there is extremely truthful and extremely alive in the confession that these kids give of their pain. And Mortal, this little young boy, he was 13. He's the stutter. There. He cannot say the world because the pain that he has there, losing his mother, his father, everybody, and say, this is al-Baghdadi. This is the, the guy that was teaching how to kill Yazidi. I hope that in the room there's a, an incredible synthesis of uh, history. And that's why the next shot is the shot of the prisoner of uh, ISIS. And yet there in my film, there is a political statement because um, no matter what, I think no human beings can be treated like that. And this is again a demonstration that uh, in Kurdistan, we abandon. You know, most of those people, they were foreign fighters. I met German, French, English, Italian, Polish, uh, Russian, Chinese, that they were there in that room. And no country is taking responsibility for that. But the only way I could shoot that was like, again, three shots. Very, very brief and very strong. What happened to the parents of those kids? Because over 6,000 Yazidis, mostly women and children, were enslaved and transported to ISIS prisons, military training camps, and homes of, of the so-called fighters across eastern Syria and western Iraq. What's the backstory, for example, of that you know, young boy? I was boy? able to, to, to mm. shoot this in extreme synthesis because I knew every backstory is such an incredible, horrible story. Horrible, horrible. And I think the synthesis of this horrible story comes with a phone call. 
of the mother and the daughter again, Yazidi. And um, that was my first encounter with this telephone, this voice of desperation there, and not be able to feel the husband that gave me this uh, phone with all the conversation. And again, that was a story years, years before I was able to say, how am I going to tell this story? How am I going to tell this crazy story that's happening there? And the first time I met him, I asked, can I feel this phone? I said, yes, and there's a hand going through this message. I feel two hours of this message. I don't understand any single word. That I know that it was a, something extremely dramatic, extremely painful, extremely unjust. And after three years, back and forth, back and forth, I went to Sinjar, to Kojo, to this place, asking this uh, young boy, he was 24, 23, that got married to this woman. The last time I went there, he told me, Gianfranco, I cannot be part of this film. You came here so many times. I have a new family. I have a daughter now. She's just three months old and I can't help you anymore. But I know that the mother of my ex-wife, she's now in Germany. So I get this number of the wife and through the head of a community that was able to contact her. She invited me there. I go there last year, exactly one year ago, on the 20-something of February. I meet her. I spent from 8 o'clock in the morning till 4 in uh, Stuttgart, in Germany. I said, I cannot film anything here. How can I film here, this scene? And then suddenly, after she told me this horrible story about all these daughters being raped in front of her, being like completely reduced to a human element of life that you cannot accept. She was crying, she was crying, she was crying. I said, listen, I have to go. I cannot do this anymore. I cannot film, I cannot. She said, no, you have to film. I know you have my phone. You have numbers. You have a conversation of my daughter there. And I want this. And you have to film this. This is witnessing what's happening to us. And then I didn't know where to film. And then suddenly I look, I open a room. This is dark room with blanket there. And those blanket, I recognize those blanket part of the, where I was, you know, with the keys, with the thing. There was this colorful blanket. And this room was just this blanket, dark, dark, dark. And I gave her the phone and I put the camera there. And after three years, the voice of the mother and the mother listening to this voice, the encounter. And that's it. You know, there are like three shots in the film. And this is again, go back to synthesis to take it out. And hopefully this moment are more than any documentary, any question, anything she could say. There's one tear coming down and there's a voice of desperation of the daughter, which we think she converted to from Yazidi to, or she was forced to convert because sometimes she, at certain point she say, your God, if he only had respect of her, yeah. she wouldn't, he would not do that, what he's doing to us. Yeah. And for me, that was everything, you know, and again, I had to wait three years to shoot that scene. What can you tell us about some of the logistical challenges of shooting a film at multiple geographical locations engulfed in a war that involved more than two parties. I suppose 
that maybe one of the reasons that it took you two years to finish this film was also the logistical issues. And I understand that you came very close to being kidnapped. That happened in Basra. Basra. In that area is an area of extreme social pain where people don't even able to drink water. Salt water is everywhere. This is the area where there's the biggest source of money in Iraq, and yet the biggest poverty in Iraq. I met there my hunter, this guy, he used to be a fighter against ISIS, and support his family, he has to go hunting birds and selling the birds in the market and waiting for the birds. And I met him very randomly. One day I was in this car coming from Baghdad to Basra after hours, hours of checkpoint, 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 checkpoint. We arrived there and I see this guy in this motorbike, which is the poster of the film. It's exactly that moment. And I said, who is he? I want to go back. He's a hunter. And my assistant tell me he's a hunter. And I said, I want to meet him. And I stop him and we start talking and say, I'm a hunter and I hunt in, in this uh, marshland. This is a place where people died during the war between, again, another absolute yes. between Iran and... And then the story is so small. And we met there and again, it's like, I didn't have a camera with me. I didn't film, I didn't do anything. I say, I'm going to come back and film your story. And six months, one year later, I came back and met him. And he said, I don't believe you are here. You really want to film my story. And then his story is just a hunter going there and wait. But that place is like the world that is upside down. It's again, metaphor in cinema. You know, it's a world that is upside down. And that's what I start filming, the weight of him waiting for these birds. Yeah. In the background, every sound you hear there is a real sound about yeah. this ta -ta 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 people shooting, 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 a war. I don't know what it was. Like We never knew what it was. That was a place where we were so close to be kidnapped. Have any but, of the people you filmed saw the documentary once it was finished? All my producer did. And, and unfortunately, I was never able to, to screen the film in that area because it's impossible to film or to, mm. to, to show in Lebanon, in Syria. It's impossible to have a screening. But, um, you know, my producer is, uh, Aura is, is my producer and he's from, uh, from Syria. And it was so important to have him on this film, you know, because he's the one that believed all that. Years, 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 years with the, the Assad regime, with the, and the mother producer there in Iraq was another one. And my producer in, in Lebanon is another one that fight against all of this. So all my producers are, you know, my first, uh, the, the one that I believe in this film so much. And for me, they are the voice of this film. Because without them, I would never be able to do this. My local producer. The stories that you tell are the stories of people that are surviving in the midst of tragedy. What gives you hope? I was hoping to break up the stereotype about that world because I've been seeing film about world in Syria and all these films I saw in the last years, for me, they're completely misleading. And unfortunately, many times about people from Middle East that they shot this film. We win the Academy Award and things. 
and with this film I wanted to break the stereotype of uh, of what war is because war is not about uh, a place where there's a bomb and there's a hospital with kids being complete war is something that's affecting in a huge way people that are so far away from from the place where that bomb exploded yeah. and you know we've been immersed on stereotype about that war for years 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 yeah. years when I spoke with you the last time about the fire at sea, I remember you told me that that specific documentary was also a call to action. And for that reason, the film was screened at the United Nations. What about this one? Is this also a call to action for you, this documentary? This film, they have the same impact on action like my other film, because in that moment, uh, there was an awareness politically, there was an awareness about the tragedy, what was happening there, and then suddenly everything stopped. And when I started this film, I thought there was a transformation there. And then again, the pandemic happened, and, and everything stopped, you know, nobody knows anymore what's happening in Syria, in Rojava, what's happening in Baghdad, what's happening, nobody talks, nobody, 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 nobody. So this film didn't have the same impact. But I think that this film is the, in the the scene of the long scene, which is the red threat of my film, in the psychiatric hospital. I think this film can open up a question and say, okay, what is... Uh, homeland there what would we do what is i'm sure that this film is opening up question and if people watching this film can have uh, this profound immersion towards the history and towards our own uh, responsibility you know, of the west to be there and relating to these few people that i show in the film and somehow relating to the world uh, this is a betrayal of history and this is the tragedy of destiny. And if few people watching this movie can think about that, then I think it was worth it to spend three years there and making this film. Gianfranco Rossi is an award-winning filmmaker. His latest documentary, Notorno, shot over a three-year period along the borders between Syria, Iraq, Kurdistan, and Lebanon. Notorno has been selected as Italy's entry to this year's Oscars in the Best International Feature category, and it opens on January 29th on demand and Hulu.
And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening.